Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I will read from Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1 through to verse 29. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. (coughs) For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many village of the Samaritans, villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Amen. Please be seated. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 25 of Acts chapter 8. The title of today's sermon is Simon the Sorcerer. We've been planting grass seeds at our place, and one thing you learn really quickly is that soil is critical. The state of the soil is critical to germination and then to long-term success of planted seeds. And in today's sermon, we'll see some bad soil interacting with the good and mighty Word of God. And also, we'll each have the opportunity to examine ourselves. A text like this One of the key applications would be for us to examine ourselves. Paul wrote, commanded us to, 
in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So that'll be a part of what we do together today, a major part. Examining ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, to test ourselves and see what kind of soil there is inside of us. And remember, these are words that Paul wrote to the entire church at Corinth, not just to the little ones, not just to new converts, but to all of us. So there's a time when mature saints are called to ask themselves, am I in the faith? In fact, that's a part of being a mature saint. I also want us to hear what Luke wrote down when he recorded the words of Christ comparing soul soils It's a critical background text for us to rightly understand what's going on with Simon, the sorcerer. Listen to the words of Christ in this parable. And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, It withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. We should examine ourselves in light of this. Where do we fit into these categories? The wayside, what is this all about? Well, this is, we're told, the devil stealing the word out of someone's heart never sprang up. There appears in this kind of individual there was no belief at all. There was no saving faith. The word was quickly taken away. What about the seed that fell on the rock? It says, as soon as it sprang up, it withered away. So it did spring up. It was even joyful at first, we're told. But this is an intellectual belief. This is not saving faith. They fall away when they are tempted. There's no moisture. There's no root. But there is a brief appearance of life. Next, there's thorns. They also sprang up, we're told. But they are choked out by cares, riches, and pleasures. There's no fruit brought to maturity. The suggestion here is maybe even some little maybe appearance of fruit, but it didn't bring fruit to maturity. These are those who stick around longer, it looks like. But there's no fruit, and they are choked out. They have a longer appearance of life, but they're choked out. But then there's the good ground. And your preacher today is praying that this would be true for each and every one of us. Sprang up, we're told, and yielded fruit from a noble and good heart. Noble meaning uh, genuine and sincere. They hear the word. They keep the word. And they go on bearing lifelong fruit in season until their heart stops beating. They endure to the end. They endure through difficulties. They endure through temptations. They endure through the chokings that we all face. And instead of dying and going away like chaff, 
as the seed did on the rock and the thorns. They bear fruit. They endure to the end. This word patience is worth emphasizing a bit before we get into the text. It's in verse 15 there. You'll see it. Verse 15 of chapter 8 of Luke. The ones that fell on the good ground are like those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. This is steadfastness, a constancy, it's endurance, it's something that's sustained and it perseveres through all troubles. And in the New Testament, it is the characteristic of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. This man, this woman, does not swerve from their deliberate purpose to serve God and to bear fruit by His grace. Simon the Sorcerer, brothers and sisters, serves as a cautionary tale for us all. Consider the parable of the soils that we've just looked at from Luke 8 as we look at Simon together today. And then also as we examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. What are we going to do? We're going to look at this text kind of focusing on Simon. Simon's past as a sorcerer in verses 9 through 11. Simon's belief, baptism, and amazement in verses 12 and 13. And then his wicked attempt to buy Holy Spirit power in verses 14 through 19. And then the rebuke he receives from Peter. And then his response. And then finally, there's that last brief description of faith in action. And as usual, some questions for us to know and to love and to obey God. To grow up by His grace as a result of considering His Word together. So, let's dive in. Verses 9-11. through There was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So, Simon had been a sorcerer here in Samaria for a long time. We don't know how long, it's just a long time. And the people had been very astonished, we see that word twice, very astonished by his magic arts. Simon had claimed with his own words to be someone very great. And all the people of Samaria had listened to him and followed him and given heed to his word. He had great influence in their midst. Let's look at these words together. The Greek word here, to practice sorcery. This is to be a magician. This is to practice the magical arts. And that word sorceries is the same root. It's magic. He was accustomed Therefore, we know he was accustomed to working with demons, using magic to engage with the invisible realm for his own personal aims. That's what he did. That's how he gained his power and his influence amongst the people. An unmediated, direct use of rituals and incantations to engage demonic forces. And what happened? He astonished the people through this. The word here is actually another way of saying it is bewitched. That's how the King James translates it. And it's to throw something out of position, to displace, to amaze, to astonish, and even to lead to be out of one's mind. Insane. So there's this sense of this tremendous deception that he was able to accomplish over their minds. Likely with the help of demonic powers. The people heeded Simon because they were bewitched by his magical powers. This great delusion was upon them. Another thing we see that goes along with this is self-promotion. Simon's promoting himself. He routinely compared himself with God, claiming he was someone great. And the people actually said of him, this man is the great power of God. (coughs) Well, no, he's not. But that's what they said of him. And this was building himself up over this long time, building up his own name and his own kingdom. This is what Simon was accustomed to. Well, in order for us, I think, to connect with the severity of the situation and the severity of Peter's words and the severity of this sin, 
we need to go back to the Old Testament. First of all, we see that sorcery is prohibited. Leviticus 19.26, you shall not practice divination or soothsaying, the people of God are told. And this divination, the King James translates it enchantment, it means to observe signs, to practice fortune-telling, to seek omens. <clears throat> and it's another way to try to engage and obtain secret knowledge apart from God. Soothsaying is very similar. You'll see these definitions as we go. They overlap. Is an observer of times. It's to conjure, to observe times, to practice spiritism, magic, augury, or witchcraft. <clears throat> this is prohibited. In scripture, this is an enchanter, a sorceress, a diviner, or a fortune teller. These things are prohibited by God. What happens if you break this? It is a capital crime. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. This is Exodus 22, verse 18. A sorceress is a female who practices witchcraft or sorcery. In Leviticus 20, 27, we're told the same thing. A man or a woman who is a medium or has a familiar spirit shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. God takes this sin very seriously. What is a medium? It's a, a wizard, a knower, one who has a familiar spirit, a soothsayer, a necromancer. One that has a familiar spirit is also a necromancer or the familiar spirit itself. That Hebrew word can be the one who has a familiar spirit or the one who is a necromancer, or it can actually reference the familiar spirit itself, or the practice of necromancy. It is also, it's not only prohibited to practice this, it's not only a capital crime for those who do engage with demons like this, but it's, it's prohibited for anyone to regard or seek after sorcerers. Leviticus 19.31, give no regard to mediums, and familiar spirits, do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And then we see there's excommunication for those who regard or seek after sorcerers. They will be cut off from God's people, we're told. In Leviticus 20, verse 6. And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. And that word prostitute... It means fornication. It means prostitution. To sell yourself in order to get something. And that's what folks do when they try to engage with the demonic realm. They try to short circuit God's only way back into the invisible realm. God's only sanctioned way is through Christ. Sorcery is an abomination that leads to national judgment as well. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. This idea of abomination it's, has a lot of uh, meanings in the cultic sense in the Jewish religion, but at base, it's just a disgusting thing. It's that which should, you should find disgusting, that God finds revolting, disgusting. Witchcraft, this word is divination. It's used of Balaam. So it's another word for this engaging with the invisible realm through your own Mechanisms through these incantations, these spells, these seeking out of omens. Interpret omens is the same word for divination that we saw in Leviticus 19.26. And a sorcerer is the same word as well, one who practices sorcery. Note here also, not only is it national judgment that these things bring, but also they're linked to human sacrifice. And as we'll see the rise of neo-paganism since the 50s in our nation... And in the Western world, uh, it's no accident that it's linked, is it, to the death of so many millions of innocent babies in the womb. And there's an example that we know of in Scripture, the one you've probably already thought of, is the witch of Endor. 
She acted as a necromancer. Saul asked her to do this. And she is described as having this familiar spirit. And she called for Samuel from amongst the dead. And so we know what should have taken place, what Saul should have done in that situation. There's a quote here from um, an online article I found about sorcery in America. These are some uh, statistics. People who call themselves sorcerers, who call themselves Wiccans. From 1990 to 2008, Trinity College in Connecticut ran three large detailed religion surveys. Those have shown that Wicca grew tremendously over this period. From an estimated 8,000 Wiccans in 1990, they found there were about 340,000 practitioners in 2008. They also estimated there were around 340,000 pagans in 2008. When you hear pagan, you should think Wiccan, you should think... Uh, the Vikings and the form of worship that they had, you should think Greeks, Romans, all of this polytheistic worship of demons is what you should be thinking about when you hear Wiccan, when you hear pagan. Going on with the quote. The Pew Research Center in 2014 found that 0.4% of Americans or between 1 to 1.5 million people identified as Wiccan or pagan, which suggests continued robust growth And we can probably guess that there's actually more than that. I doubt they underestimated it through their survey. So we live in a world now of what's called neo-paganism, neo-sorcery. These things are happening in our world. They're praised in our world. The Air Force Academy I was reading actually put up a a pagan shrine of some sort at the Air Force Academy because you know they have to be inclusive. Now what about Samaria? Well, Samaria, we have to understand, was a place of syncretism, and it's an important part of fitting this whole story together. Commentary says, after the conquest by the Assyrians under Sargon II in 722 B.C., Samaria was destroyed, and both the city and the region were depopulated, later to be resettled by colonists from other regions of the Assyrian Empire. Okay, so there's some Jews who are still there, faithful Jews, But then all of these other nations, pagan nations, come in and they blend together. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 17. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvain, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so, at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. I'll pause there and you'll see this is still treating the one true God as nothing more than a provincial God with a little g, as a demon, the God of the land. Now going on to verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the, God, how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth-Benoth. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children... And their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did, even to this day. So when the book of Kings was written, up until that day, 
this type of syncretism was just accepted. That the Lord God, the Most High God, you could fear Him, you could serve Him, you could worship Him along with all of the other gods of the land. It was an accepted practice. So while faithful Jews likely existed and and it it continued, the same practice of syncretism continued up through the time of Christ. So while faithful Jews likely existed in Samaria at this time, the culture had this long, centuries-long history of syncretism. That's the combining of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought and trying to blend it all together. It's this polytheism. Hence, it's no wonder that a sorcerer like Simon would thrive in Samaria. It's no wonder there were so many demons that needed to be cast out. And it's no wonder that when Philip came in and demonstrated power over all these demons that Simon had been working with all these years, that Simon took notice. Simon knew that some real power greater than his own that he'd ever experienced had arrived. So now, looking at Simon's belief, his baptism, and his amazement, verses 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And we already know this from the prior verse, verses up in, in, in 6 and 7. We already know this is happening. We'll get some more detail. And it's presented in the context, as you'll see, of Simon. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So we know that Philip had preached Christ to the people of Samaria. What did he preach? Christ. And many miracles occurred through his ministry. Simon saw this. The multitudes believed the gospel with one accord, we're told. Let's look at those verses again, 6 through 8. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So what did they believe? What was Philip's focus? You see the the clear contrast here between Philip and Simon. Well, he's focusing on the name of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 5. What did he preach? He didn't preach himself like Simon did. He preached Christ. And then in Verse 12, he's, we see here that he preached to them the name of Jesus Christ. Next, we see in verse 7, what did Philip focus on? What did Philip bring? He brought the destruction of the demonic realm. There was no plan that Philip had to engage with demonic forces or to compromise with demonic forces. They were to be destroyed and crushed under Christ's feet. There is an engagement with the demonic realm that Philip had, and it was to place them under Christ's feet, and to see them destroyed and vanquished. Verse 12, he spoke of them of the kingdom of God. And this is, again, in contrast to Simon. What did he present? The kingdom of the devil. More darkness. And then in verse 12, we see that Philip focused upon Christian baptism. The outward rite given by Christ, contrary to all of these rituals that Simon would have taken people through to get demonic help. We need to remember again, and don't ask me how many times we'll look at this verse throughout the course of Acts, but we want to hear it again because this is where Philip is coming from. This is where we should be coming from because look, we, there's so many things out here right now, sorcery movies, magic movies, people scared of, of demons. Guys, that's backwards. That's backwards. They are terrified of you who are in Christ. And if you walk into a position like Philip did, into a place like Philip did, and you walk in the confidence of the gospel, and you preach the gospel, you preach Christ, you preach the name of Christ, you preach the kingdom of God, demons will be placed under Christ's feet in that place. And so we want to have these thoughts in our mind. We want to be confident of these things. And we want to know that as we walk and go, we can walk and go like Philip did. Then he said to them, this is Jesus. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Commit this verse to memory. 
make this verse your marching orders like they did as well. And you can practice a life of continued faithfulness just through understanding these basic principles that are given to us by Jesus here. So the context of verses 12 and 13 points to the people of Samaria leaving behind the influence of Simon. And Simon, you can, it's inferred, he does not like this. And so then what does he do? He chooses to believe and be baptized within the context of losing this power amongst the people of Samaria. Next, what happens? After his baptism, where does he go? We see Simon continuing with Philip. And Simon's focus is upon the miracles and the signs being done via Philip's gospel ministry. He's trying to be identified with Philip. He wants the people to see him as on par with Philip. Oh, yeah, Philip's here. Uh, We're going to do this together. That's probably the kind of thing that was going on. Do we know for sure? We don't, but we can see later when Peter corrects him the kind of wickedness that was in his heart. Commentary says, Simon believed with a historical faith that it was indeed true that our Savior had done miracles and did rise from the dead. But his faith, to be sure, was dead all the while. Neither did he believe with his heart or purpose to live according to the law of Christ, which is the life of faith. He continued with Philip, kept him constantly company, and was amongst the forwardest and the professors of the professors of Christ's faith, and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Thus the magicians of Egypt were brought to acknowledge the finger of God, although their hearts were hardened. So what kind of belief do we see here from Simon? It says he did believe. And there are some commentaries who will say that he was actually born again from above. And he is, uh, throughout this whole testimony here, a Christian. One who's born again from above because it says he believed. But we've also seen, have we not already, from Luke chapter 8, that there's a kind of belief that doesn't go anywhere. It's the same kind of belief that demons have. So what kind of belief does he have? Well, the rest of the text tells us his belief, I think we can say, was like the springing up of the seed on the rocky and or the thorny soil. It seems a little bit more like the rocky soil. There's this brief show of life that we see from him. And and it was so much so that Philip baptized him. Right? So... You know, hypocrites, those who are not true believers, there's no way for church leaders to sort that. Commentary says, Nay, though he was now but a hypocrite, and really in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity all this while, and would soon have been found to be so if he had been tried a while, yet Philip baptized him, for it is God's prerogative to know the heart. The church and its ministers must go by a judgment of charity as far as there is room for it. So we can say that Simon is an apostate. Because he was baptized. He was a member of the visible church who turns his back on Christ. So what was motivating Simon to this belief? To this decision to be baptized? To this decision to be with Philip? Well, given his long-term connection with demonic powers for a long time, his continual self-promotion, the desire for preeminence, and his obsession with power, I think we can guess, what was motivating him. And it serves to challenge each and every one of us. What are our motives for being Christian? Next we see the fruits of who he really is. Verses 14 through 19 when he tries to buy God. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So first we want to see here the significance of Samaria receiving the word of God. This is a big deal. It has moved outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, and now has moved into Samaria, as we heard Jesus had told them it was going to happen. And so they send, the apostles who were in Jerusalem make a decision, they heard about it, and they send Peter and John. When they get there, Peter and John note that the Spirit of God had not fallen on them like what had happened in Pentecost, so they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. Lay hands on them, the Holy Spirit falls on them, it's very likely they began to speak in other tongues, in other languages, miraculously. 
They had been baptized in the name of Jesus. This was Christian baptism that they had received. But the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them and given them this gift of tongues, this great external demonstration. Commentary says, They were none of them endued with the gift of tongues, which seems then to have been the most usual immediate effect of the pouring out of the Spirit. This was both an eminent sign to those that believed not and of excellent service to those that did believe. This and other such gifts they had not, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and so engaged in Him and interested in Him, which was necessary to salvation. And in this they had joy and satisfaction, like we saw in verse 8, though they could not speak with tongues. Those that are indeed given up to Christ and have experienced the sanctifying influences and operations of the Spirit of grace have great reason to be thankful and no reason to complain that they have not those gifts that are for ornament and would make them bright. So there's nothing here that says that those who had believed that all of that multitude, that none of them were actually born again from above, but that there were true believers in their midst, and of those true believers, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Perhaps it was only leaders, perhaps it was only a portion, we don't know the details, but the Holy Spirit fell upon them with the laying on of hands. Now, this is where we come to Simon's sorceress thinking continuing. And this is something for us, I think, all to ask ourselves. Do we have sorceress thoughts towards God? So he offers money to Peter and John. It's likely that he's seeing Peter and John as sorcerers like himself. And that he wants to attain to their status. Commentary says it gave Simon a notion of Christianity as no other than an exalted piece of sorcery in which he thought himself capable of being equal to the apostles. So Simon had his rituals, his rites, his magic that he would do, and he could control the spirits on the other side, and he figured that this is the same thing going on with Peter and John, and he wants a piece of it. So what is he after? He wants power for himself. That's what he wants. He wants this power for himself. He wants to join with Peter and John in what he believes to be their great sorcery. Like, these are great sorcerers, and I want to join with them. There's an insult to them as well. Commentary says, Simon does not desire them to lay their hands on him that he might receive the Holy Ghost himself for he did not foresee that anything was to gain by that. Notice that. But that they would convey to him a power to bestow this gift upon others. He was ambitious to have the honor of an apostle but not at all solicitous to have the spirit and disposition of a Christian. He was more desirous to gain honor to himself than to do good to others. So ultimately this sorceress way of thinking sees God as a genie in a bottle that we can somehow control through our own ways to oblige him to do what we want. And that's what he wanted. He wanted to control God with money. Commentary says his own ambition drives and carries him headlong so that he desires to become excellent and to make the world subject to himself, setting God apart. He'll buy the Holy Ghost as if the Holy Ghost could be bought with money. So this is a deep offense of God and of God's people, especially when we consider how vile God finds sorcery in the first place. That Simon is essentially treating God like a demon to be bound with human effort. And it is casting God's grace aside. So Peter rebukes him sharply. Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness. And pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And so it's, it's this language here that you know, helps us look back through the prior sections and say okay. This is not a man who had saving faith. This was a man who was engrafted into the visible church, but not engrafted into Christ himself. So Peter calls for both Simon and his money to perish. Perish means destruction, ruin. And it is often the destruction which consists of eternal misery and hell. It is true this word can be used to mean physical death. But in the context, it appears more likely that that Peter is telling him, this is going to take you to hell if you continue in this way of approaching God. 
Peter goes on to define Simon's mind, his thinking. He's thinking that God's gift can be purchased with money. Think of how this trivializes Christ. This is the highest insult to the gospel of grace. Of infinite worth, fools and fiends would offer money for that which could never be purchased with all the money, with all the planets, with all the resources of the universe. We could never purchase one drop of Christ's precious blood. The commentary says he thought the power of an apostle might as well be had for a good fee, like the advice of a physician or a lawyer, which was the greatest spite that could be done to the spirit of grace. All the buying and selling of pardons and indulgences in the church of Rome is the product of this same wicked thought, that the gift of God may be purchased with money when the offer of divine grace so expressly runs without money and without price. You see how quickly we can get into this way of approaching God in these syncretistic systems. We can think that somehow we can purchase God's favor. Peter goes on to define Simon's status for him. He tells him you are neither part nor portion in this matter. Another strong phrase. Thou hast nothing to do with the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Thou dost not understand them. Thou art excluded from them. Hast put a bar in thine own door. Thou canst not receive the Holy Ghost yourself, nor power to confer the Holy Ghost upon others, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. If thou thinkest that Christianity is a trade to live by in this world, and therefore thou hast no part nor lot in the eternal life in the other world which the gospel offers. So we can see this man's heart is not right with God, and he has no part or portion in this matter of eternal life. His heart is not right with God. Now certainly we can say there are times for us Christians when our hearts need to be set right with God. But this is a through and through description of Simon. Not right in the sight of God. Though thou profess to believe and are baptized, yet thou art not sincere. We are as our hearts are. If they be not right, we are wrong. And they are open in the sight of God who knows them. He judges them and he judges of us by them. God knows our heart. Our hearts are that which they are in the sight of God who cannot be deceived. And if they be not right in his sight, whatever our pretensions be, our religion is vain and it will stand us in no stead. And so there's fewer things that could be more frightening to hear from the mouth of an apostle that your heart is not right in the sight of God. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He says he's poisoned by bitterness The King James says he's in the gall of bitterness. Simon is in the gall of bitterness. This means odious to God as that which is bitter as gall is to us. Sin is an abominable thing which the Lord hates and sinners are by it made abominable to him. So Simon is still in his sin. He's still abominable to God. So Peter's meaning is that Simon fell not only in one point but that his very heart root was corrupt and bitter. That he fell into Satan's snares, not only in one kind of sin, but that all his senses were ensnared so that he was wholly given over to Satan. And that last quote was from Calvin. But Peter goes on, further defining his status, that he is bound by iniquity. And again, commentary says, bound over to the judgment of God by the guilt of sin, and bound under the dominion of Satan by the power of sin, led captive by him at his will, and it is a sore bondage. So this is a terrible rebuke that Simon has received. He has been laid open by Peter as to his sin and his wickedness and his hypocrisy, that he is not really a true believer, not really a true Christian. And it would seem to be a very scary thing to hear. Almost hopeless, perhaps. But it's not. Because Peter calls for Simon to repent of this wickedness in mind and heart and behavior. Simon's apostate status, brothers and sisters, is not hopeless. He still offered the gift of salvation. And, and so this, this should be very encouraging because... It doesn't really matter whether you were a Christian yesterday. It doesn't really matter whether you were a Christian when you first thought you came to faith. It doesn't really matter. What matters is right now today. 
Right now, today, today, are you a Christian? Commentary says, The thought of the heart, though ever so wicked, shall be forgiven upon our repentance and not laid to our charge. When Peter here puts a perhaps upon it, the doubt is of the sincerity of his repentance, not of his pardon if his repentance be sincere. See, our temptation at times like this is to say, oh, how terrible it would be if I concluded I wasn't a Christian before. It doesn't even matter. Don't even let that think that thought cross your mind. It matters today, right now, whether you are in Christ. That is the present tense that Paul gives in Corinthians. Examine yourself now, today. So what is Simon's response? It's not a good response. Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. He's running from the flames. His focus upon himself continues. He appears concerned for his own safety because he has bumped into greater power than his own. So that's good. He does believe in this great power of God that he's come across, but he just wants to escape it. And note that he doesn't pray like Peter told him to. You go and pray and talk to God and repent of this wickedness. He says, please pray for me that this would not come upon me. Commentary says he begged of them to pray for him, but did not pray for himself as he ought to have done. And in desiring them to pray for him, his concern is more that the judgments he had made himself liable to might be prevented than that his corruptions might be mortified and his heart by divine grace be made right in the sight of God. You see, there's nothing relational here for Simon. It's not about being made right with God and having a living relationship with his maker. It's about escaping the flames, escaping this great power that he has bumped into. So we see now in verse 25, real faith in action. There's a contrast laid out for us here. And this is part of how we test ourselves. Part of how we test ourselves is we compare ourselves to real faith in action in the scriptures. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So the first evidence of real faith that we see from the apostles is that they testify. They testify to Christ. Remember, they're called to be his witnesses. And this is them testifying, being those witnesses of who he is, that he did come and live this life, that he did fulfill all of the predictions in the old covenant regarding the Messiah, that he did go to the cross. He did die upon the cross. He did come back from the dead. He did ascend before their eyes to the right hand. And they preached the word of the Lord about Christ As they testified, they continued to preach. And they did it in many villages, spreading the gospel of Christ. They saw the advantage of sharing the gospel on their way back to Jerusalem. And they were obedient. They returned to their calling in Jerusalem. Bear in mind, (laughs) that great persecution is still underway in Jerusalem. It's still not a safe place to be. But they went back there. And we remember from verse 8, great joy. Another evidence of real faith is persistent joy. Now, we don't really know for sure because it's kind of a short story here in terms of what's happening in that whole city, but certainly the appearance is that the gospel has taken root, there are signs and wonders, and there's real faith and great joy in that city. So let's take some time to consider ourselves and consider Simon and think through some of the key points from today's text. First of all, I have a question. What were the evidences of Simon's apostasy? Right? Well, it's pretty straightforward. He had this persistent focus on power and self-promotion. And he had that sorcerous approach to the Holy Spirit that he could somehow control God. And I think it's worthwhile asking ourselves, how are our own sinful motives similar? This is just Simon's flesh expressing itself in an unchecked fashion. We all have our own fallen flesh that's constantly trying to get free. So where do you see in your own life these similar sinful motives calling you to promote yourself, calling you to have power to use for yourself, and even treating God like a genie in a bottle, somehow believing you can make God obliged to you? Next. In the midst of his wickedness, was Simon hopelessly lost? Was he without any hope? No. 
And the same is true for us today. He was offered forgiveness, and we today are also offered forgiveness. If you, through the preaching of the Word today, find that you are not sure whether you are a Christian and whether you are like Simon, walking around in the confusion, because it's, it's not even clear whether Simon knew that he was a hypocrite, right? It's not even clear that he was consciously pretending. If the Lord convicts you today as you examine yourself for the fruits of the faith, it's okay. All right? It's not the end of the world if you say, hey, you know what, I think today I may have come to faith for the first time. In other words, you've got to lay aside all your past decisions and look at yourself today. So, when you examine yourself today, right now, do you see saving faith at work in your own life? Do you see this? What is the key thing that we see there in Luke 8? Bearing fruit, right? With patience over time. So you're going to be able to look back in your life and you're going to be able to see the bearing of the fruit of the gospel in your life over time. Let's talk about this. The fruit of the Spirit. You go to Galatians 5, you should look at that. Do you see these qualities in your life more and more? Do you see change over time in your life so that the fruit of the Spirit are becoming more and more evident in your life? What about a thirst for God? Do you have a thirst for God to know Him, to know Him more and more, this idea of abiding in Him? Do you see this in yourself at work within you? See, what we're talking about is the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Christ in you. These are the things that come forth in life over time. The life in which Christ dwells. These are the things that you will see. Do you see a growing hatred of sin? And I don't mean out there. I mean in your own self. Do you see a growing hatred of your own sin? Is your own sin more distasteful to you day by day? And subsequent to that, do you find yourself being more and more merciful towards the sins of others? Do you find yourself thinking that when you feel like you've been terribly, unjustly mistreated, that you realize that you've been granted unjustly mercy? From God. God, you didn't you don't deserve mercy from God. You deserve God's justice. Each of us do. Do you find yourself more and more merciful towards others who hurt you, who disappoint you, who sin against you? You find yourself more and more merciful towards those who harm you. Do you find yourself with a growing joy and gladness? and exaltation in the forgiveness of your sins. When you ponder what Christ has done for you, and you think about what you deserve, do you find yourself more and more filled with joy, rejoicing in forgiveness? You see, the, the, the phrases I'm using are on purpose. More and more, not perfectly, right? More and more. Do you see God doing this in you and through you more and more over time? How about love of his commandments? Keeping them from a glad and thankful heart, do you find yourself more and more loving and keeping his commandments? And less and less just because I'm supposed to. Nothing wrong with duty, don't get me wrong. But the higher plane of obedience being from a heart of love of God and his commandments and finding them as treasures, as true treasures, God's commandments. How about real walking in the light fellowship with one another? Do you find yourself growing up in real exchange of your soul? Not just with God in your prayers. We must have that, walking in the light, but with one another. So that your soul is known by those in your life. They can pray for you. They can help you. And you want this. You desire this. You have a a growing desire for this 
interdependency of covenant living that you want this for yourself, for your family, for our church, for the world. Walking in the light as he is in the light. Do you see in yourself a growing life of humility and confession of sin and repentance, this trajectory of of brokenness over your own sin? Do you see this growing more and more in your life? See, these are the things that the scriptures describe. You may not know it, but I'm basically going through 1 John 5. Excuse me, through the book of 1 John. These are the... And there's you know, multiple scriptures, but the book of 1 John is written so that we can know that we have eternal life. And he goes through and he describes all of these things. Are we loving one another more and more? And what I mean is real help, real prayers, real assistance, a growing compassion that you have for those in your life to help them, to serve them, to, to be their friend, loving one another. Do you have a growing love of his word, a growing desire for truth in your mind and in your heart, a growing hunger to meditate upon his word, and an increasing experience over the weeks, months, years? I know there's low points, okay? Just because you're in a low point right now doesn't mean you're not a Christian, okay? But do you see these tr- this, tr- this trajectory? This is, this is what with patience means in Luke 8 is there's going to be this trajectory over time, this sustained, divine, heavenly kingdom work within you from heaven by Christ, by His Spirit. A not loving this world, a discernment that God has given you for that which is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and a growing disdain for the things of the devil and of the flesh and of this world a growing distance between yourself and the kingdom of darkness, not just in practice, but in your heart, not loving this world. You know, the the world, the devil sets up this system. Our flesh goes along with him, and entire institutions and nations and kingdoms are set up that we can call this world, and wow, how alluring it will be. But if you are a Christian, the trajectory of your life will be not loving those systems. You can be grateful for them. We can see the blessings of so many of this and the stability of many of these structures, but we do not love them. We love God. We love the foundations of order given to us in His law. We long for a society that will honor Him and glorify Him. And we are growing more and more able over time by His grace to discern the distinctions between the kingdom of the devil applied in the world and the kingdom of God. Are you more and more living with a childlike faith towards your Father in heaven? More and more each day rejoicing in His love for you and finding yourself calmed and your soul at peace more and more able to believe that He loves you, to receive His love, to receive his forgiveness when you fail and to have mercy towards those in your life who fail. This is what the children of the Father do. We have this heart towards God that says, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And we, we, we can say, Abba, Father, like we read from Paul twice, right? In Romans and Galatians. He's given us the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Do you see God as your Father More and more. See, because when we're delivered from our sin, we're brought from a world where God is our judge and that's all we know of him. And we're brought into a world where our Father is God. Jesus said, when we pray, we pray our Father. Brothers and sisters, he is no longer our judge. Those of us who are in Christ, there's no longer that threat that judgment will send us to hell. We're free of that. Are you rejoicing more and more that you know that when hard times come into your life, that your Father in heaven is disciplining you because he loves you, because he's changing you, because he's growing you to be like Christ. Do you find in your life decreasing fear over time? Decreasing anxiety, decreasing likelihood of, of worry and the laying in your bed and the ruminations that we do in our mind 
catastrophizing is what we call it in the Clark family. Do you, do you find yourself doing less of this and being able to much more quickly live in the house of love? Because perfect love casts out all fear. And when we are in fear, what has happened is that we've forgotten God's love. We've gotten back into the world of the flesh. All right, so that's a lot. Right? It's a lot for us to examine ourselves and test and see if we're in the faith. But each of these areas, right, it's, not, it's not perfection, it's, dire- it's direction, right? It's trajectory. And there will be this trajectory in your life if you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This, this over time is the trajectory of faith. Do you see this in your life? Because John wrote the book of 1 John to encourage To encourage, he says, I write these things to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So these tests aren't put in place to send you out of the church today or send you out of the book of 1 John believing you're not a Christian. These things are given so that you can see the work of God in your life. You can talk to others. Do you see the work of God in my life? And you can be reassured that you are His. And you can carry out, you can complete this test today. Test yourself today to see if you're in the faith. You can today complete that test for yourself today. You should be very encouraged, I hope, because God is so good that he not only does these things in us, but then he helps us look back and see these changes and see what he's doing. And you know, trees grow slowly. And trees don't make themselves bear fruit. And we just go, wow, look what God is doing. And it just brings such joy to see what God is doing. We leave it all in his hands. All right. I think another important point for us to consider is do you take God's view on sorcery? We have to talk about this today. Do you take God's view on sorcery? God has a view of what it means to practice it, to regard it, or to seek it. And I think the question I would bring before your mind's eye today to consider is, How should this impact our intake of books and movies? Especially books and movies that contain magic arts and sorcery within them. How should that impact our intake of this material? Now, I am not going to stand here and tell you that I think it's always wrong to read such a book. I haven't studied it enough to have a dogmatic position on it. But I know it's not healthy if you are desensitized to the wickedness of this activity. Okay, it's not all fun and games flying around on broomsticks at a, at, a, at a kid's school. Okay, that's not what it is. All right? It's not just about whose magic wand isn't broken today. It is about the demons of hell laying claim to your soul and your family and your future and your land and giving them a foothold in your life. Even as a Christian, you can give demonic forces a foothold in your life. You can give them legal ground. In your life? Do you want to do that? I think it's important for us to realize that we live in a time of the resurgence of paganism and sorcery over the last 75 years in America. It's documented. And so, what we need to understand is that demonic forces have been able to scamper about and crawl around our nation all of these years because Christians have not taken the dominion and exerted the authority of Christ like we can. Because these demons must flee. They flee away screaming. They come out crying. They have nothing. Don't don't watch the movie Exorcist if you want to know about what happens when Christians in the power of Christ come upon demons. What happens is they flee. They flee when we sing. They flee when we praise God. They flee when we say the name of Jesus Christ aloud. They flee when we pray aloud and we sing and we go forth and we testify to his victory and his glory upon the cross. They will be trampled underfoot. Whose foot? Jesus, our great Savior, our great conqueror. And so this is where we need to land, that we have authority over all the power of the enemy. Okay, we need to pray accordingly, think accordingly, act accordingly. And while these things are very powerful and not to be trifled with, and we're warned away from them for a reason, it's not because they're more powerful than God. It's not because they're more powerful than Christ. It's not even because they're more powerful than us. We, in Christ, are delegated with his authority over them. 
Brothers and sisters, let this sink in to your thinking, to your prayers, to your living, to your understanding of the mission that you've been given in your life and in your prayers. Be encouraged. The demons of hell are vanquished. The devil himself is vanquished by Jesus himself. And all the power of heaven is being sent forth by Jesus Christ, by his word and his spirit through and in his people to place all the enemies of hell under our feet, which are his feet. And we need to walk in this confidence and pray this way and and rejoice that God is the victor over all the enemies, all the enemies who would come against him or against us. Next, I want to warn us against syncretism. Okay? We need to beware of syncretism, the blending together. And there's a lot that could be said about this. I think we can look at the, the way that Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and other um, prelacies have often come into certain cultures and, and tried to blend in with their paganism and turn pagan days into Christian days. We, we see that. I think that's something that we know is obvious. But there's other forms of syncretism that we need to watch out for ourselves. Where are we not thinking biblically? Where are we bringing in unbiblical thought in how we think of God and how we worship God and how we live? So please pray about that. So let's go forth today, brothers and sisters, like the apostles did, preaching, testifying, loving, and filled with the joy of God, knowing that because of Christ we are safe. Examining ourselves, being honest with ourselves before God. And if you come to the conclusion, hey, I don't see these fruits in my life. I think I'm going in the wrong direction. Then repent. Cry out to God for forgiveness. And perhaps today is the day of salvation for you. Or perhaps you'll say, I see the work of God in my life. And I rejoice in the work of God in my life. And you'll go forward joyful. Either way, you'll go forth joyful. Today, starting right now, because of who Jesus Christ is, because of what he's done, because of where he is, because of what he's doing, and because of his promises to you that he will never let you go. And he will lead you and he will guide you all the way through to the end. Whatever fruit that he has determined that you're going to bear, he's going to bring it to pass in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do ask that you would grant to us by your Spirit to see our own hearts the way that you see them. And Lord, that we would rejoice in all the good that you are doing in us. And if by your grace you do show any one of us, Lord, that we are not in the faith, that we would see this and understand this and we would cry out to you. We would confess our sin to you and look to Christ and ask you to forgive our sins and trust in you and be filled with your spirit. Lord, grant that every soul here today, I ask, would rise up in joy and worship and exaltation praising you and thanking you for who you are and for what you have done for us, delivering us from our sin, from death, from hell, from, all, from the devil and all his forces. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.